Good morning, Mission View. It's good to be here together. We've had our call to worship, and it was an incredible call to worship, wasn't it? We learned that God's not dead. We've been affirmed that the blood of Christ is taking care of our sins, and we could shout with victory. That's our call to worship. Today's going to be a little bit different. That was our call to worship. Now we're going to have contemplation in God's Word. We're going to take a look at Proverbs chapter 2. And then after that, we're going to have our response in worship, how you can participate. We're going to do that in two ways. We're going to celebrate communion together. We're going to take communion as a, as a statement of victory of what God has done in our life. So I hope that this is a statement of victory. And then finally, we're going to conclude by giving sacrificially to the Lord in our offerings. So we're saving our offerings to the very end as a part of our worship and our celebration of the victory of God. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that we could be together in God's Word. Open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 2. Now I got a question for you. Maybe you can relate with this, maybe you can't, but have you ever noticed how stupid people can be at times? Has anybody ever noticed that? Uh, anybody notice, do you, know, do you know stupid when you see it? Now, yeah, well, I, <laughs> Bob, I, I agree, you can be stupid, I'm sure. I'm sure Jill agrees with you. But there's times that we just get going in life and we see things on the news and you think, oh, that is so dumb. You know, I saw a news clip this week about them trying a cattle rancher who's had 100 years of cattle ranching. They're going to cl possibly close down his cattle ranch because they want to save the field mouse. I'm like, that's stupid. Come on. What's going on here? They're stupid all around us. And yes, as Bob said, we do stupid. I want to tell you a story of how I both experienced stupid but also participated in it. This past week, my wife and I did a little grocery shopping on Monday, actually, and we went to Walmart to get our groceries. Now, you might be saying, Steve, that was your first mistake going to Walmart on Arlington Road. Now, I, you know, we went there, we're, you know, this is our community store, so we wanted to support it, so the shopping wasn't bad. It was when we got to the checkout line. Now, if you know Walmart, these Walmarts have like 20 to 24 different checkouts, and of course, only four were open. That's right, only four, to me, that's stupid, okay? You got customers, you got to allow them to get out of the store. So the four lines were very, very long. We got in the shortest of the four lines, and we went through the checkout. We finally made it through, and we, uh, we weren't paying much attention. Lee and I were talking to each other, the ladies checking all the food out, and we paid the bill, and, and I got the, the, the receipt, and you got to understand, when I shop, there's a calculator that goes off in my mind, and I kind of have an estimate of what this should cost. I'm thinking, this should cost about 45 bucks, and it was about 65 bucks. So I start looking at the receipt, and I, sure enough, there we are, $21.84 for 13 stocks of celery. Now, I want you to know my wife and I are trying to eat healthy, but we don't like celery that much. We had one stock. Well, the lady was already busy with the next customer, so I turned around, and there was a clerk right there kind of overseeing everything, a young lady. So I go up to her with my receipt, and I'm like, hey, they, uh, they accidentally must have hit 13 instead of one. So what, how can we get this quickly resolved? And she goes, oh, sir, 
you're going to have to go over to customer service. And she pointed over to this long serpentine-like line that weaved in and out of the different displays. And there was one clerk waiting on this whole line of people. And as I'm walking over, I'm thinking, this is absolutely stupid. This, I can't believe this. And this is kind of where stupid started to come in on my part. So I'm standing in line, and I'm kind of complaining under my under my voice and so i go over to the lady after about five minutes of the line not moving and i said miss could i talk to your manager i said it really nice really nice she says yes i'll call so i go back in line and i stand in that line it doesn't move for another five minutes and there's no manager so i go back over to her i said uh could you call your manager one more time I go back to my line. I stand in the line as a good, as a, as a good citizen and no, no manager. So I thought, you know what? She must not be getting the point. So I decided that I would go over and stand right next to her so I would be a physical reminder of her as if I was the only customer in the entire store. And there was no manager. So I finally I said, young lady, I would like you to call your manager again and I'm going to ask you to do so every 60 seconds until your manager comes. I know. Horrible. <laughs> stupid. <laughs> this is where stupid came to me. Finally, the manager came. I explained our frustration. You should have more attendance, more people checking out. It seems like a silly system. I wanted to say a stupid system, but I didn't do that. Now, we got the issue resolved. And Later that night and that week, as I was preparing for the message for Sunday morning, it's amazing how God's Word intercepts us in the different aspects of our life, I learned something in reflection. The reason that stupid is all around us is because stupid resides in our heart. See, the Bible doesn't use the word stupid. It uses the word foolishness. It uses ignorance. In fact, there's the degrees of words where it's, there's some things that are just simple, like everyday life things that I experience, but they get more serious. And the Bible goes on and says it even can go to the place of evil. Evil. See, the simpleton walks down a path and he is going through human logic and the logical place if God is out of the picture is that it will always pull you deeper, deeper, deeper in stupid that becomes eventually evil. And so this is what Proverbs teaches us. Now the great philosopher Forrest Gump once said, stupid is what? Stupid does. Now I think I would add to that statement this statement. Stupid does because stupid is in the heart. You know, Jeremiah says that the heart is desperately wicked. We learn in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 20, Solomon says deceit is in the heart. Proverbs 22, 15 says that foolishness is bound up in the heart. That's why we discipline our children. In fact, Solomon, in talking to his son in chapter 23, says this, Hear, my son, listen to me, be wise, and direct your heart in the way. 
What he is basically saying is that there is a path and there is a why in that path and you can choose to go the way of foolishness that will eventually lead to evil or you could choose a different path that will lead you to God. You're at the fork in the road, my son, and I want you to choose this way. I want your heart to go the way of God. Now Solomon is speaking as a man who probably, and if you re know anything about Solomon's life, I should say he did go down all the wrong paths. He went down all the wrong paths, so he's speaking from experience that he knows that when we go this way, it will take us to places of evil. And that's why in chapter 2 of Proverbs, he says, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the darkness. Deliver, let God deliver you from the perversity of evil, the crooked paths, the devious ways. My friends, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, how can we be delivered from stupidity? How can we be delivered from foolishness? How can we be delivered from evil? That path will take us there. So how can we do that? How can we be delivered from that? Well, Proverbs chapter 2 is going to reveal how we do that. Now, I am glad that he delivers us. And the title of our message today is Deliver Us From Evil. Anybody here need delivered from evil? Anybody here in the midst of an evil world, do you need delivered? Do we need to know that God's not dead? Do we need to know that we are covered under the blood? Do we? Absolutely. So let's take a look at his word. Our outline is pretty simple. He's going to give us the foundation of our deliverance and then the evidence of our deliverance. Pretty easy. Foundation and evidence. Let's take a look at the foundation in verses 1 through 5. He says this, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek for it like silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So he's being very clear on the foundation of how deliverance is going to take place. Let me break this down. He gives four ways. The first thing he does is he's going to talk about the choice. He will then talk about actions that we are to have. He will talk about the agent of change that should be true in our life. And then the results. What's the choice? Take a look at a word that's used three times. It's the word if. In verse 1, he says, if you receive. In verse 3, he says, if you call out. In verse 4, he says, if you seek. Now, what Solomon is about to do for his son is he is about to lay out the formula for success for his son that God had given him, but he is doing so in a way that he is saying it's conditional. If, if in other words, you can make wrong choices that will derail what God wants to do for in your life. 
You stand at this Y on the road. If you go this way, there's disaster. If you go this way, then there will be blessing in your life. It is a choice. It's really a choice of whether you live under God's protection, under God's victory, under God's authority, and it means that we work hard for God. But if we go this way, we will be lazy, we will do the things that are wrong, and he is saying there's a choice here. Now, I think in a sense, I, let me put in an analogy that I know especially sports fans could understand. There's a difference between a fan and an athlete. You know that? Now, we've seen lots of fans this week for LeBron James, right? You've seen, I mean, it's almost sickening how much it's on. By the way, I'm very happy LeBron's coming back. I'm glad about that. But... <laughs> You, you look at the fans, and so you see some of the positive aspects. But go to a Browns game sometime, and you will see the negative side of the fans. They're cramming down hot dogs. They got hot dogs spittle all over their mouth. They got beer. They're spewing out. They're like, hey, you should have done this, and you should have done that. And their belly's hanging over their belt, and they're just criticizing all the players. Well, there's a difference between a fan and a player. And what Solomon is in a sense saying to his son, I want you to be a player. I want you to be an athlete. And see, the difference between the two is one gets out of bed and the other doesn't. The one signs on to the mission. They're not just going to observe what goes on. They're saying, I'm there. I'm there. I am all in. Think about what an athlete does. He gets up in the morning. He exercises every day. He understands the rule book. He understands what he has to do. He has to have a, a regiment in how he eats and how he exercises. He has to be laser focused. Back in the 80s, there was an athlete that I so admired. Some of you might know who he is. Who he is Mike Singletary. I went to school in Chicago, so Mike Singletary was a guy that when we, in the early 80s, we were watching the, uh, the, uh, the uh, Chicago Bears all the time, and we were excited when they won the Super Bowl in 1986. But when the lens of the camera would zoom in on Mike Singletary, you saw an intensity about this guy. This guy, I would have not wanted to been on the receiving end of the defensive punishment that he gave to people. This guy was intense. And he had a reputation that he was the first to show up at work. He was the last to leave. He was the one always watching the films afterwards to see how he can improve his trade. He was a person who made choices, and as a result, he was an MVP. He was also known for his spiritual guidance. He was called the minister of defense because he ministered the gospel on the field and off the field to the players there. He made a choice. And this is what Solomon is saying to his son. There's a choice. I want you to choose the right way. I want you to choose the way that will lead you to discipline, that will lead you under God's path. Here's the question for us. Are you on God's team? Are you just a fan? Or, are, or an observer? Are you a fan of Jesus saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is awesome. But in your life, there is no evidence that you're getting up early, that you're reading his rule book, his manual, that you're disciplining your life in prayer and just seeking his face. That Are those things evident in your life? God doesn't want us to be fans. He, want us to be, he wants us to be the athletes to be on the field for him 
Those are the soldiers that he uses. Now we go on and we see the action. Take a look in these five verses, five verbs that are given. He says in verse 1, my son, if you receive, the next, uh, next part of verse 1, treasure up. He says, making, incline, calling out, raising, seek, search. These are all verbs of actions. They show us how we are to live a disciplined life. We are to treasure God. We are to be inclined towards God. We are to call out to God. We are to seek God. We are to search God. These are all actions that are to be true of the person who has the foundation of this deliverance. If it's going to be true in your life, these should be happening. Now, these verbs are married with the agent of change. Take a look at the end of the sentence. If you receive my word treasure up my what is it command say it with me make your ears attentive to wisdom incline your heart to understanding yes if you call out for insight raise your voice for understanding if you seek it like silver you search for it as for hidden treasure all these eight words that complement the verbs is, are agents of change. And they're all synonymous with one concept, God's wisdom, God's word. My friends, God's word, this right here, is God's agent of change in your life. And what God, it's not going to happen by sleeping on it. It's not going to happen by it look, it's just sitting on your nightstand and dusting it off once in a while. What's going to happen is when we become a student of Jesus, not because someone told me to, but because I love Jesus. I want to know Jesus. And what Solomon's trying to say is God's word, God's wisdom is the agent of change. You say, how is it an agent of change? Hebrews 4.12 says this. Listen to this. God's word is a two-edged sword that penetrates and even divides soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 teaches us that God's word, it's only through God's word that our minds become reprogrammed or transformed. It's only then that we can know the good and acceptable and pleasing will of God. See, here's what happens. When we get saved, God becomes the sculptor. God is the one who says, I am going to do something beautiful in your life. And you're kind of like this block of marble. And what God does as a sculptor, he says in Philippians 1, 6, uh, the work I began in you, I will bring to completion until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God will do. And so what God does is he takes his agent of change, the hammer of his word, and he takes his Holy Spirit and he starts chiseling in our life. When I first got saved, I can remember reading God's word and all of a sudden there was words that were falling from my life because I knew they fell short of what I had read in the Bible. There was attitudes, there was actions, there were people that I was hanging with. All kinds of things are falling off because God's doing this chisel work in our life and he's using the agent of change in my life. Guess what? When we don't read God's word, the agent of change isn't going to affect us. 
But when we read his word, all of a sudden, God starts chiseling away. But he also starts developing intricate details in our life that he wants us to have. He wants us to have love. He wants us to have compassion. He wants us to have uh, kindness and gentleness and forgiveness. All these attributes that are attributes of Jesus, he wants to be in us. And guess what? After time, we start taking the form of Christ. We start looking like Jesus, as Ephesians 4 says that we should do. My friends, are you looking like Jesus? Do you see the agent of change that's involved in your life? That's what he wants to do. And the results will be evident. Look in verse 2. He says, our ears become attentive to wisdom. The first thing he does is we start listening. We start listening. Instead of leaning on our own understanding, anybody guilty of that? Uh-huh, I am. Anybody listen, go get counsel from everybody else before you ask God? No, no, no. What God says is, seek me first. Seek me first. I will give you wisdom. I'll give you ears to hear. If you seek me, you will find me. And God will make a difference that way. My friends, what would life look like if we sought God in every decision? What would it look like for us? The other thing it does is it changes our heart. It says in verse 2 and 5 that our heart gains understanding. The word understanding means to discern, to have a clear vision, to be able to see everything. Not only do we hear clearly, because our heart and our eyes are connected, we start to see clearly. And it's because we're under the fear of God. We're under the knowledge of God. And this is what he wants to do in each and every one of us. Have you ever looked back on your life, especially at the beginning of your salvation, and think, man, I did a lot of stupid things back then. God moves us from those silly things that we, and immature things that we did when we were young in Christ, if we are doing these things, if we're under this foundation. Now, Solomon gives us foundation, but then in the rest of the chapter, it's all evidence. It's all evidence that if this is true in your life, here's the things that will be evident. And so he gives us four things. Some of them we've already sang about today. So the singing has interacted with the preaching of God's word. Take a look at the first evidence. And the first evidence is victory. Look at verses 6 to 10. Six to ten. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. And when he does that, guess what he does? He shields those who walk in integrity. He guards the path of justice. He watches over the ways of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity with every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Now go back to verse 7. It says he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. That phrase, sound wisdom, could also be translated victory. He stores up victory for the upright. Now, both words mean this, to have sound judgment that yields a moral victory. Sound judgment, we're making decisions that leads to a moral victory, a moral outcome. This is why Solomon has words of morality interacted with this in these verses. He says that we will walk with integrity. We will operate on the path of justice. 
you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. In other words, when God's truth, when God's truth is being applied in our life, it means that we're going to make better decisions. And when we make better decisions, it will lead to us being people of integrity, people of justice, people that are walking on the right path. And let me tell you, that leads to a moral victory. And it leads to you giving God a good name. Do you realize we wear his name? We wear his name. And God, if you understand anything in the scriptures, he takes his name very, very seriously. We were first called Christians in the book of Acts. The word Christian means little Christ's. It was the name given by lost people to Christians. Oh, they're different. I could see it in their life. They, they're like those little Jesuses walking around. That's what we are. We bear his name. And notice when we bear his name and we do it in an upright, in that moral victory, it says in verse 7 that he shields us. He says that he guards us in verse 8. In verse 8, he watches over us. See, the progression of the benefits is verse 10. We see wisdom will come into your heart. It first resides in the heart. It affects your knowledge, your mind, and it's pleasant to the soul. In other words, when you and I do our part by intentionally striving for God's wisdom, he does his part by filling our minds, our hearts, and our soul, our whole being. And as a result, we have an ironclad moral victory in our life. Now, for every believer here, if this is true of you, then you have the foundation. But if this is, if there's not a moral victory in your life, if you look at your life and the morality that you're living, just understand you're on the wrong path. Plain and simple. You may say, I, I go to church on Sunday. I might look good. I might dress up really nice. I might even smell good. But please understand, by the evidence of your life and what you do determines what path you're on. It always does. You can't pretend. But for those that are on and are enjoying the victory, praise God, continue on, because that's exactly where he wants you. He wants us to have the moral victory. But it doesn't stop there. He also provides protection. Take a look at verse 11 through 15. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverse speech, who forsake the path of the up, uh, uh, who forsake the paths of uprightness, to walk in the way of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked, who are, who are devious in their ways. Notice what verse seven, 11 says: discretion. You can use wisdom in there too. Discretion, wisdom will watch over you. What will they do? They deliver us from the evil that Solomon is laying out here. The first evil that we're delivered from is perverseness of speech. The word perverse is an interesting word. It means to turn somebody from normal speech to perverted speech. 
In other words, it's, by the use of that word, it's identifying that there is a force that is always going to try to gravitate you and pull you from the correct path off to the wrong path that's going to get you from right behavior to wrong behavior and there's always going to be that force in this world and that force is going to want you to draw corrupt it's going to want you to join in with all their friends in in darkness in doing evil and delighting in evil and living in devious ways there's always that force it almost kind of sounds like a classic movie doesn't it it's the Lex Luthor versus Superman. Now, of course, Superman is always going to beat out Lex Luthor, this evil force that is always trying to do something wrong. The problem is, this isn't a movie. This isn't pretend. There really is evil forces in this world. Yes, there's people at the forefront, and that's what we see. But behind people are evil forces. That's why Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, um, guys, our struggle here. It's not with flesh and blood. It's not with what you can see. You see people trying to do this, but please realize there's something bigger behind, of it, behind all this. He says this in Ephesians. It's against the rulers. It's against the authorities. This is against the powers of dark, this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. This is a satanic army that's involved here. Four tiers of, of the satanic army that's involved in our world. And it's always trying to pull people towards evil. Towards the, for the lost, he wants death and destruction. He wants to, to get you, to uh, prevent you from ever get proclaiming Christ as your Savior. For those that are saved, he doesn't want you to live for the glory of God. So he wants to derail you. He wants you to ruin the name of God any way that he can. This is the forces of evil. This past week, Pastor Brian buried a 23-year-old person on Monday who was a victim of this force of evil. All around our community right now, young adults are dying like crazy because they're taking this uh, heroin that's laced with fentanyl. And it's just grieving my heart. Some of it's coming close to home. And we see all this, it's death, it's destruction. This is the way of the enemy. And, uh, uh, and evil people here, they're not dressed up in a joker uniform. They're not dressed up as an evil villain. They're in business suits, they're in blue jeans, they're dressed just the way you and I are dressed. And according to our passage, you can understand their ways by the way that they lead us. But there's a hero here. There's a hero in this passage. And the hero is not in a red cape and a big S on his chest. No, the hero here is God's wisdom. It's God's word. And God's word becomes the Iron Dome defense system that we need. Do you know what the Iron Dome defense system is? If you're watching the news right now, you know that Israel is being bombed by Hamas. In fact, one of our Mission View missionaries, Stefan Silver, has just been called up to active duty to, uh, to, for the Israeli army. It's bad. It's really bad. We need to pray for the peace of Israel. But fortunately, Israel has this thing called the, uh, the, uh, the Iron Dome defense system. I investigated it this week. Here's what it does. It does three things. It detects the attack. It analyzes the course of action. And it intercepts the problem by sending out missiles that destroy the missiles that are coming in. And it's being highly successful. 
My friends, God's word becomes the iron dome for us. God's word does that. It helps us. When we are reading God's word, it helps us to have a mind that can detect the attacks of the enemy. And with the mind of Jesus, we can start to analyze what is the course of action so that the problem can be intercepted. The question is, are we living under that protection? Some people are doing that, and you're seeing that victory in your life, and that is an awesome thing. You're seeing that protection in your life. But I'm going to tell you, some have stepped out of under the dome. You have stepped out from that protection, and that is a dangerous place to be. God wants victory for us. He wants protection for us. But he also wants to deliver us. Take a look at verse 16. So you will be delivered delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to the death and her path to departed. None who go, go to her come back, nor do they regain the path of life. Now, this passage is all about deliverance. It's about God delivering from the adulterous woman. Now, we're not going to talk about the adulterous woman. That's going to come in chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Proverbs. But here's what I do want to point out here. There's a key phrase in verse 7 that he wants to, that the enemy wants to move us away from the covenant. Now, he's talking about the marriage covenant, and I think this is significant because we've got a lot of married people in this room. And the word covenant here is very significant. The word actually means to cut. And in the Old Testament, here's what would happen. God would allow an animal to be cut in two, and when somebody was making a covenant, a vow, a commitment, they would pass between the blood of the animals, and they would be, in a sense, cleansed and covered by the blood. And this would seal the covenant. It would ratify the covenant. Now, we know that Abraham and God made a covenant. But actually, God made it with Abraham. Abraham went into a sleep. And God went through and passed through the, these two halves to show Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. Two people could enter into that. And in marriage, this is the ratification of the marriage. Two individuals passing through the blood. You love the picture here. And saying, this is a covenant that is ratified. Now, the point here of deliverance is that God wants to deliver our marriages. He wants us to deliver us from all the things that are forces that are pulling us away. And we live in a very sexual world, a very sensual world, where we're always going to be pulled that direction. And God says, no, I don't want you to forsake the covenant. I don't want you to forget the covenant. Why, does, why is there an attack because he doesn't love, the enemy doesn't love the church. He doesn't love the redeemed. And he wants us to fail. But here's the beauty of God. God is a God of victory. God is a God of protection. God is a God of deliverance. And when we stay under the shield, the protective covering of our covenant, and we go to church with our spouse, we love our spouse, we pray with our spouse, we serve our spouse. When we're honest with our weakness with our spouse, when we have time with God with our spouse, all of this stuff matters, and it puts us under the shield and the protection 
of his deliverance. My question is, are you enjoying it? Are you enjoying it? Do you have a marriage that you would say, I, I love it. I love this covenant. I am on the right path. If you are on the right path, rejoice, man, rejoice. Be happy with that wife. Be happy with that chisel husband of yours. Be happy with them. Use some imagination with the chisel part. Uh, but if you're not, get on the right path. You're headed for destruction. You're not, and there's help. There's help for you. The final thing is the blessing that he gives. He gives us victory. He gives us protection. He gives us blessing. And let's think about the blessing before we take communion. He says in verse 20, So you will walk in the way of the good and keep the path of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out. Two blessings here. Number one is security. Security in verse 20. So you will walk in the way of good and keep to the path of the righteous. What he is talking about is the security that comes from doing what's right. My friends, when you're driving down the expressway and you're going the speed limit, you don't got to look over your shoulder to see if there's any popo that's tagging you. You don't have to worry about that at all. Why? You're living within the law. You're living within the law. My friends, we don't have to fear STDs when we are sexually pure. We don't have to fear bankruptcy when we are living with our means. We don't have to fear failure when you know that your significance is in Christ. You don't even have to fear the devil and the evil one when you are a child of the king. You need to claim that confidence. You need to know that confidence because you have security. The question is, do you have it? Do you know Christ? Is he your king? The second provision here, the second blessing is material provisions. Look at verse 21. For the upright will inherit the land and remain in it. Do you get that? Land for us, it may not mean as much as it did to the Jew. For the Jew, land was everything. Land was their food. Land meant their livelihood. Land meant a home and possibly livestock. And what Solomon is saying to his son, he's given the same promise to his son that God gave to him. If you obey me, I will bless you. I will give you every provision that you need. We got a God who wants to do that. And please understand that Jesus reiterates this in Matthew 6. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you what things read the chapter he gives you clothing he gives you food he gives you everything that you need to live for him and let me tell you that god is eager to bless you he's eager to bless you i think there's nothing more grievous for god as I, as i know as a father to, to want to bless your son or daughter, to want to do that, but you can't. God is grieved when he can't. He wants to make provision. My friends, our foundation is on Christ. And when it's on Christ, we fear no evil. 
and there will be evidence of this foundation. It will be seen in the victories you experience, the protection that you face, the deliverance that you enjoy, and the, the blessings that you have. And today, as we conclude our message, here's what I want us to do. I want us to celebrate those things. Let's celebrate the victories. And so when we take communion, and when we have our offering in a little bit, it is a sign of the victory that God has for us. And so as this song is being played, I just want us to reflect on what God has done for you. And maybe in your own seat, you would just praise God. In, the wor in your words, just say, God, thank you. Thank you for what God, you have given to us. And we'll prepare our hearts for communion.